Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. The guest on this particular episode is Chris Payne, otherwise known as C.F. Payne. His website is cfpayne.com, and you can see images of his work and a link to his site on my page, brentwatkinson.com. And as always, please click that subscribe button wherever you are listening to this podcast. It goes out to many, many places, some of which I know about, some of which I have no idea and am constantly surprised when people tell me. I'm like, oh, that's cool, whatever. I have a poll on my website about the length of podcasts that you would like to hear. And that's on my podcast page right now. So if you would like to answer one simple question, pop over there and make your important opinion heard. Chris was inducted into the Society of Illustrators Hall of Fame in 2018 and received the Hamilton King Award way back in 95. I didn't know it was that long ago. Well-deserved, but I thought it was more recent than that. So that one sentence will tell you the heavy hitter that is Chris Payne. Hall of Fame and Hamilton King. Boom, boom. His client list is a mile long, of course, as are his other accolades. And Chris is not only a great picture maker, but a passionate educator as well. And he has been teaching at a high level since around 93, I think, when he moved to Dallas. I taught with Chris for about 20 years or so with the Illustration Academy, and I watched and learned as he helped students, young and not so young, get better, get to the next level with his insights and understanding of how to get inside the head of those that are attempting to gain knowledge and craft. He was very good at that. Chris always makes me think of great drawing, great conversation, and plenty of laughs. And one night during a summer session of the Illustration Academy, my wife and I took Chris to dinner on a really severely stormy, rainy, blustery night. It was terribly inclement weather outside, but you know Chris, good old Chris, made the interior of that place really warm and full of laughs. And I don't think my wife and I and Chris <laughs> ever laughed so hard as we did that night. It was, we were just goofy. I don't know. And I don't even think we were drinking, but we were just having fun. And the place wasn't busy, so it's not like we were causing a problem or we're going to get thrown out or anything. But that was a night I'll never forget. He was always ready to entertain and have fun. And on that note, Another occasion after taking Chris to dinner following a long day at the academy, which is kind of redundant because every day at the academy is kind of long, Chris insisted that I come inside and we were going to watch a movie and draw. Okay, sure, yeah, whatever. Maybe for a few minutes. Yeah, for a few minutes, Chris, I can do that. So he popped in the quiet man into the VCR. Yes, the VCR. You heard me. It was a while ago. Anyway, The Quiet Man is a great John Ford movie from 1952, starring none other than John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. And this movie 
is pretty much a course on directing and staging movies and theater, in my opinion. You could do a five-year class on that movie, I think, and never run out of things to talk about. And that's one of Chris's favorite movies. So we started watching the movie and drawing in our sketchbooks. Chris was on this jag about working with pen and ink and making landscapes in a sketchbook, which were just gorgeous at the time. It's not that they were gorgeous at the time. (laughs) He was doing these landscapes with pen and ink at the time. And they were gorgeous. Okay, I cleared that up, I guess. And suddenly a bottle of really good tequila appears on the table. Uh Uh-oh. Well, we rolled into the academy about three or four hours late the next day. And I think I stood in the corner and let Chris explain it to everyone. And it was kind of like having your big brother explain to your mom and dad what happened the night before. Anyway, if you know Chris, you understand that he knows all about every movie ever made, every baseball game ever played, (laughs) every baseball player, their stats, their rookie season. And I'm not talking about guys that play now or just guys that play now. You can ask Chris the stats of Honus Wagner and then get out of the way. Honus was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1936. Why do I know that? I just told you. And Chris will tell you. And if you think you're going to win a friendly wager against Chris, have your money ready. I think he can probably tell you the lighting designer for any movie made since the birth of a nation in 1915. And he probably knows the best boy in the grip. So don't bet against him is all I'm saying. He grew up absorbing and learning everything around him. He was a sponge. And I say this with great admiration. His goofy, quirky sense of humor comes in part from the early Mad Magazines, Cracked Magazines, Comics, 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 an interest that I share with Chris because we both loved the artwork in Mad and Cracked, and we talk about some of those artists in this interview. And we, (laughs) I think, we've both been damaged in some part by the incredible satirical humor that we devoured in those magazines as a result of pouring over that artwork and those great, great artists. Chris is really a giving and kind person, and he's the kind of guy that will help you carry your barbells from the basement into the attic. All you need to do is ask. He is funny and witty, but dead serious when it comes to education and helping people learn. My friend of too many years to mention, Chris Payne. Let's get into it. Chris, how long would you say that you were working as a professional after you graduated college? How long did you work before you became the artist doing the work that we think and know and love as C.F. Payne with no signature? I mean, your work, you don't ever have to sign anything because you're the only one that can do that. So how long did that take 
to get to that point? I guess probably at least 12, maybe 15 years because, um, uh, to put it in the timeline, uh, I graduated in 1976. And so for, for a lot of the listeners, that's, that's a long time ago. And the illustration world itself was very, very different. This was before fax machines, before, you know, computer generated artwork. This is before FedEx. So a lot of artists, when they got done with school, they would go to work. And oftentimes you'd go to work in a studio that was in the region where you lived. Now, right after college, I did go to the illustrators workshop, which was the uh, first workshop that they hosted on the East coast. That's oh, the so you with, went to number one. Well, technically Mark said the number one was, I guess, almost like a spring training run of it out in California. I was at the first one that was in uh, New York at Marymount College in um, in New, upstate New York, up uh, north of the, by the Tappan Zee Bridge. And so um, that was 1976. And it was from there I heard about a job opportunity in Akron, Ohio. And it was a studio that Bob Heindel had his first job when he was just getting started as an illustrator. And so they were looking for somebody to replace an illustrator who was moving from Akron to another job. And so I applied and uh, fortunately uh, got hired. And so I was doing studio art, which was anything from doing marker drawings for slide presentations, marker drawings for package comps, marker drawings for layout comps, doing black and white illustrations. And if you're working in Akron, I mean, sorry, you're drawing tires. You, you draw <laughs> tires. And a lot I understand of, that, yes. And all the associative stuff that goes along with it. So you'd be doing a picture of a, of a, you know, a four-wheeler with certain tire on it and somebody driving or somebody unpacking some goods out of the back of the truck and here's the tires. And so it was all the same kind of thing. They look like car ads, but they were basically obviously tire ads. And so you, you learn to do those. And when you come into a studio, you're replacing somebody. And so when you're replacing somebody, they want you to paint like that person. It was a bit of a struggle because that person worked in a way that I was totally unfamiliar with. But I think they liked the fact that they felt I could draw. I mean, most most jobs, people will say, you know, okay, if, if your color's not that great, we can help you. If your design's not that great, we can help you. But if you can't draw, we don't have time to teach you to draw. And so they felt I could draw, so and they could manipulate me and mold me into the artist that they wanted me to do for their clients. Well, and, and that so, scenario that you're describing was not uncommon at the time, was it? No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. That, that was Akron. If you were working in Cincinnati and you got a studio job, you know, your primary clients would be people like Procter & Gamble, Cincinnati Millicron, some of the, the companies that were in this area. If you were out in Kansas City where you are, you know, you might be working out at Hallmark or some other companies that were in that region. And they don't have to be just the national companies. We're talking the you know the people that uh, change tires, your battery and and mechanic shops. You have your local and regional Dairy Queens, and you have your restaurants, and you have I mean all those folks needed art to service that region, and so you have studios that service that. 
what you would do, at least back in those days, the idea was you kind of learn your way, get your legs under you there. And I stayed in Akron for two and a half years with the idea that I would go to another city, maybe like Chicago, which is what I did. And then eventually you would end up going to New York to try to make it in New York. So I was working at that studio job. And at the time, you know, I'm just trying to keep up, you know, trying to serve the client's needs and be adapt and to adapt to this direction that they were working. And once I got comfortable in that, it wasn't what I really wanted to do. So I could then take that particular style and just maybe tweak it a little bit, change this a little bit, change that a little bit, slowly adapt things into something. So by the time I left two and a half years later, the artwork that they wanted me to do when I first started did not look like the work I was doing then. And of course, whoever the poor fellow was who took my place, he had, he or she had that good opportunity or good fortune to have them say, no, we don't want you to illustrate like that. We want you to illustrate like this guy, the guy who just left. <laughs> and that's just oh, the thanks. way it was. That's just the way it was. I, I don't so, want to follow Chris Payne. Sorry. And of course, who was I looking at during those years? I mean, who are some of the artists who are doing cars really well back in those days? Oh yeah. All the big guys that later became the Westport school. Yeah. You, 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 and of course you'd be looking at Bernie Fuchs and Mark English and people, this guy said, well, if you like Bernie Fuchs and Mark English, you gotta look at this guy. And that's where you're introduced to Austin Briggs. And then you get guys like John Whitcomb and Kobe Whitmore and, you know, all the different artists. And of course, you know, I graduated from college, went to art school and had a fairly decent art history background, but I had literally no history of illustration. So I graduated college. I mean, I knew who Norman Rockwell was because I liked Rockwell. I knew who certain comic book artists were because I liked comics and Mad Magazine and such. But the history of illustration, I mean, I didn't know who Maxwell Parrish was when I graduated from college. I had never heard of J.C. Leindecker. I had never heard of Dean Cornwell. I had never heard of Charles Dan Gibson. And so when I was at the studio, the, one of the art directors there, Dick Sefton, started introducing me to a lot of this. He had files and files and files, pulled out all the uh, Bob Heindel stuff. He was showing me Bob Heindel work that he was doing when he was at that studio, when Bob was 19 years old, and 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 showing me that. And you start learning from those folks and you start understanding that, wait a minute, there isn't just art history. There's a thing called illustration history. And that's when I started really looking and finding the artists whose work really spoke to me. So and you, were, you knew about art history and your education was similar to mine in the fact that I was in the same boat because art history loved it, had a great, great art history instructor at the time but illustration wasn't even a word in our school and i of course like you knew norman rockwell because there were lots of books one of which was how i make a picture and you know this yeah. whole book <laughs> was his process but i didn't know any of those names at the time of my graduation that you were talking about so yes there was this whole new world that you and i knew nothing about well, and also, I don't know how it was where, where you were, but if you admitted to liking Norman Rockwell, 
you're a knuckle dragging heathen. You know, <laughs> I mean, you're just a fool. You're a, you know, and people didn't like that. And of course, if you like comic books, well, you're just somebody who just didn't want to grow up. You weren't mature. You know, I just always got a kick out of it. You know, I'm, I'm in school with all these other freshmen, my freshman year and your freshman year is all about, you know, getting through class, but also learning to drink. And so these <laughs> fellow freshmen who, you know, you're getting drunk and you're holding their hair as they throw up in a trash can or something like that. By the time they're sophomores, they're in a cl another class and they're learning fine art. And so they're looking at, you know, Richard Diebenkorn, who I like, and some of the other abstract expressionists. And I'm saying, you know, well, I still like Norman Rockwell. I want to work like them. And they all of a sudden, all of a sudden they became within that one year of transferring from a freshman into a sophomore and wanting to paint like Rauschenberg and me wanting to do illustration, their intellect grew like a rocket ship. You know, they all of a sudden were intellectual geniuses while <laughs> me, because I like Rockwell, I was just a knuckle dragging heathen. And so, so we were scorned. I mean, you, you, uh, you talked about illustration. You were just, that's, that's not real art. That's not real art illustrators are prostitutes you know they're just prostitutes and that was that was the line we get yeah luckily i got that after college because like i said the word illustration and illustrator didn't even exist in the program that i was attending it was just a a state school and they were doing their best to hold their own but i missed out on that entire world well, I, I found out, you know, I started was arguing so much with these teachers. Somebody told me, you need to take a graphic design class. Go over here with Joe Cox and his graphic design class. So I ended up go switching over to graphic design. And it wasn't until Joe Cox, who was our teacher, he was a member of the da uh, Dayton Art Directors Club. I went up to the Dayton Art Directors Club and I saw Alan Cobra present. Wow. And I, this was my senior year like November, October of my senior year. And I went to Mr. Cox and I said, that's what I want to do. I don't want to design packages for soup. I don't want to design soap packaging. I don't want to do annual reports. I don't want to spec type. I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to draw. I want to make the, this is what I want to do. So my senior year spring semester, I had four assignments that I did that were illustrations and uh, we had we only had one book in our college, this was at Miami University, that had anything to do with illustration. And that was Society of Illustrators Annual Number 16, and that was Joe Cox's personal copy. And so and we would let's, pour let's over. Clarify, let's clarify Miami. Tell us where that is, because ah, a lot yeah, of people okay. are thinking Florida. Uh, yeah, well, Miami University was Miami University before Miami, Florida. It was Miami, Florida. <laughs> Miami University was founded in 1809. Uh, old school and still is very well respected school university of Miami is in Miami. This is Miami university in what city and it's, and it's in Oxford, Ohio, about five miles from the Indiana border in the Southwest corner. The reason why we know it's about that far was because at that time, Oxford was a dry County area. So you could get three, two beer, but that was it. So if you wanted to get something with a little bit more punch to it, you had to go to College Corner to buy your whiskey. So we would do our whiskey runs. But okay. anyway, well, now that's very clarified. I'm I'm learning a lot. Yeah, you betcha. 
but it's now it's 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 fine now i mean i think i think you can get whatever you want to now in oxford they've they've grown up but uh it had a long tradition i don't know how much of a tradition it had as an art school i mean they had some really good teachers there and good people have come from there roy schnackenberg graduated from there um ed fullwider was a great teacher there joe cox who was my teacher was a great teacher he was and smart he, enough to bring in alan cober oh no doubt well and <laughs> and honestly later on i imagine we'll talk about teaching this is one of the reasons why i teach was because of joe cox what he brought to a class and the atmosphere that was in his classroom was was a great learning place and i just admired that kind of thing that he brought to a classroom for students to learn. Was he casual or formal? Was he strict? Um, (laughs) well, in my way, he wasn't, he, he was very informal, but yeah, he was strict by today's standards. I mean, people go crazy when I tell the stories of critiques where you'd have all your work on a shelf and he'd you critique the work and he'd look at the artwork and he'd walk past them and he'd just kind of flip a piece down, flip a piece down, flip a piece down. And these, you know, like half the artwork would fall on the floor and he'd just leave it there and he says, these will be the pieces I'm going to critique because the rest I don't want to waste my time with. And of course you, uh, you know, today, you know, schools would go crazy, you know, about that. But the idea was of course, and it worked, I mean, he only had to do it once or twice. He didn't do it every time. He only did it like the first or second time. Because once he did that, you were like, holy cripes. That's my butt and make sure that my piece stays. I don't want my piece to fall. So you worked really hard to get done with the piece to make sure it was really complete and looking as good as you can make it. You didn't want that piece to come down. So as I say, we only had that one book. And so that's where we poured over it. And that's where we got our first introduction to like Bart Forbes, Bob Peake, Mark English, Bernie Fuchs, Alan Cober. I mean, I can tell you specific images that were in that illustration annual that I remember to this day, the Bernie Fuchs portrait of Arnold Palmer kind of walking up the, the green to the fair from the from the fairway and you really can't even see any detail in Palmer's face, but just because the shape of Palmer and the hat that's on his head, you knew it was Palmer. You just knew it. And it just blew your mind to see somebody be able to capture that so well. Now you Um, mentioned Alan Cober being what I will essentially refer to as a visiting artist uh, that yeah. your that your teacher brought. For those of you that don't know, please look up Alan Cober's amazing work. And he was a little bit out in right field, I guess, for some people and so for some illustrators at the time. What do you remember about seeing that very unusual work for the first time? Well, the thing that I that I most took from it was first of all like you said because it it's not traditional in the sense that it's not of a school of say like rockwell the level of realism that's a very strong stylization but it's a very personal stylization and it's to me what came across was he's just drawing the way he draws this is the way he this is who he is 
And one of the things I've always said about Cobra, even to this day, I mean, Alan's been gone now, but 15 years, I think. And if you were to see his drawings, his drawings look as fresh today as they did when he did them because they are devoid of commercial stylization, if that makes any sense. They're just the purity of who he was. There are some artists out there who were super commercial successes, but you look at the art that they created, you can almost say that looks like that was done in 1977, April, 1977. <laughs> you know 10 I mean? It's that, it's that they're just so wedded to, to the commercial standards of the time because, um, all art in many ways has a, has a, a sense of fashion to it and has a fashion demand to it. Um, all you have to do is look at a, a society of illustrators from 19, say 65 to one from 1970 to one from 1980 to 1990 to now each one of them has their own kind of life to them and what, and what's, what's in style. And so, and that's was, not necessarily a, a negative. That is just no. the sign of the times. And it's kind yeah. of fun to look at those and, and recognize them. Uh, it's one of the things I actually like about illustration. I mean, I, I oftentimes say that illustration is a real mirror to our culture. When we want to really see and understand who we were as a culture, or who we are as a culture, we can look to the artwork that's being done in these venues. It's very hard to look at, say, for example, a Mark Rothko and, and say, okay, now let's see, what were people like in 1957? It's not that I don't like Rothko's work. I do, but what am I going to glean from the culture? Whereas when I look at a Robert Weaver illustration or a, uh, Bernie Fuchs or an Alan Cobra, you go down the line of Brad Holland, you, you really get a sense of, of what the culture was. So how do you think Alan Cobra was able to produce the work that he was doing? And the interesting part about his way of drawing was he made it look like he meant to do it. Yeah. If I tried to do that, they'd say, Brent, you're, you can't draw. <laughs> But when Alan did it, it was just like, oh, that's his interpretation and his perception of the world. I like it. How did he do that? Well, that, that kind of falls into when you discuss, you know, what, how do you define good drawing? I mean, how do you define it? And I think that's it. It's big it, question. It, it has the look that it was intended to look. You know, this is what the artist wanted you to see that the artist was in full control. There weren't happy accidents. It's not to say that you can't do things in a drawing that has a spontaneity to it that creates quote unquote happy accidents, but you're controlling that. You're controlling that. And, and Cobra had this unique vision and how he saw the world. And it was, ex you were seeing it exactly as he wanted it to be. And I think one of the things for, in some ways, you know, he was illustrating at a time, remember, publishing was in full throttle. Uh, annual reports were 
done every year. Advertising was utilizing. This was at a time when, like today, if you get Communication Arts Magazine, you you get these annuals. Well, nowadays, there's the design annual, there's the interactive annual, there's the photography annual, there's the illustration annual. Back in those days, there was just the art annual. Illustration, photography, design, everything was put in one annual. It was all part of the communication arts. And so back then, you would have, as your jury, you might have Bernie Fuchs judging right alongside of a graphic designer, alongside of a photographer or an art director. Nowadays, there, you'll never see an illustrator ever be allowed to judge a design annual. They will not allow that to happen. It just, it's going back to that same stuff we were talking about with fine art and illustration. Designers will not tolerate having an illustrator judge their work. You may as well let the guy who fixes your Xerox machine judge the art then. <laughs> well, Chris, I've really loved the circuitous route that we've gone here. And I love talking about Alan Kober and, and his vision and the way he would see and draw. Let's back up a little bit. And we were talking about you were working at the studio and then, but you were just a guy. So when did Chris Payne emerge? So, okay. So I'm at the studio in Akron for, as I say, uh, about two and a half years. I go to Chicago for a year, did not enjoy the work I was doing up there. When my wife, Paul and I got married, she got a job opportunity and we moved to Dallas, Texas. So we go to Dallas, Texas. And so I leave my jobs and I'm go to Dallas and now I'm going to try to start freelancing as an illustrator. And it's while I'm in Dallas that, uh, things start to change and, and they're somewhat, you know, dictated by, you know, trying to find work, trying to get work. When I first showed up there, I mean, I was doing a lot of the same stuff that I was doing in Akron and Chicago, Just, you know, being hired to do comp work, things of that nature. And I remember all these younger artists who I was getting to know, said, you need to take your artwork over to D Magazine, show the art director over there your, your work. Cause, you know, D Magazine, as in Dallas D, Magazine? Yep, yep, D Magazine, which was Dallas Magazine, and they had this art director. you got to show this art director. So, because he's the guy, he's the good art director. So I go over to show this art director, and I make the appointment, and I go in with my work, and everybody's gone through this at one time in their life, but and it's but this was like the first time it happened to me so so boldly. I mean, my work is there. He is flipping the pages, and I mean, there's like this blank stare. <laughs> Here it comes. Yeah, he's just flipping through my artwork, and it's you know, it's like, is he looking at my artwork or is it roadkill? What, what is he looking at? <laughs> And he just flips it about five or six pages and stops halfway through and says, okay, thank you. Hands me the portfolio and said, thank you very much. And I'm like, what? No, no conversation, no questions, no nothing. It was just like, okay. So I walk out and I'm going, what the hell was that? And I just about get to my car and I say to myself, you know, that was horrible. That was so rude what he did. 
So I turned around, I was going to go back. I wanted to go up there and tell him I thought what he said did was rude. And just as I get to the front door at D magazine, I realized all of a sudden the light bulb went off in my head. I said, wait a minute. You made the appointment. He didn't owe you anything. You went in, you wanted him to look at his work. He looked at your work and that was it. That's all. So I said, okay, something was wrong there. I got to figure this out. So I go back to some of these young artists who, who were working in Dallas that I knew. And I started looking at their work. And all of a sudden it, it hit me. I said, these guys are making pictures that have either an idea or a story to tell. When I was in Chicago and Akron, so much of the work we were doing was montage based, which is kind of a, like an illustrated collage. And there really wasn't any idea to it other than the fact you found associated elements to like, if you're doing, you know, an illustration on the Indy 500, you got a picture of AJ Foyt, a car, you know, the, the pole to this, to that, the brick, you know, all that stuff. You just put it all together in a, and come up with a composition. These guys were doing stories, ideas. And I said, I got to start coming up with ideas and come up with something to say. And so in the process of that, I started giving myself assignments and trying different things. And at a certain point, I said to myself, you know, you like to draw. And so I decided to, instead of taking a photograph and putting it in an opaque projector and transferring it, drawing it out and painting it, I simply drew my picture based off the reference and projected the drawing where it was like, start to trust the way you draw. And so you were really taking control of your picture by using your drawing, your personality, whatever went in your eyes and brain and squeezed out the pencil. That's yeah. really where it started. And, and it started off just saying, okay, this, let's see if we do this. And, and you get a format that maybe it's a vertical format. So I kind of pushed the vertical a little bit and I started, this is pretty good. This is this, I was getting positive feedback from that. So I said, okay, I don't want to go Gil Stone, who was a great illustrator in his own day, uh, who extended vertically the figure kind of in a Jacques thought way. Um, but I, so I didn't want to do that, but I was liking the vertical thing. And then, and then one day I get this assignment and what's the format? It's a horizontal. I'm going, well, gee whiz. Uh, if I do that, I'll end up having a string bean in a horizontal format. It's going to look kind of dopey. So then I said, well, what if I take the head and vertical that, but I take the shoulders and, and take them and go horizontal. And so now all of a sudden I start realizing the format design designs the, uh, uh, composition. Does that make sense? Yes, because you were redesigning your reference to fit the idea and the format of the the picture and again the composition, I'll, I'll use yeah, the, yeah I'll, the I'll use the term you were taking control and you were making the picture the picture wasn't you know pushing you around 
no, if you, you, you realize you have this, this is the place things belong. And, and so, and all of a sudden composition starts to really make sense because you're putting things inside a space. And that's even comes down to when you're drawing a figure itself. When I talk with students, you know, you get the shape of a figure. If you get the shape right, it, when I say shape right, it doesn't mean it has to be photographically accurate, but that you get the shape integrity of it together. Well, within that shape integrity, there is a north, south, east, west to that shape and things happen inside that shape that relate to each other. And that's where you're, you're all of a sudden, you're, as you say, you're controlling all of this. You're controlling all of this. And that's to some degree. And so I would say when I was in Dallas, um, as I say, I graduated 76. It wasn't until probably about 1987, 88, when I started to do some pictures that started to kind of have their own presence that people seemed to like. But it still took a little bit of time. That's why I'd say it's more like 15 years to where I really started to feel comfortable with and, and trust the things I was wanting to do in a picture. And all of these were conscious elements in your mind that you were not only quote sculpting the picture, sculpting the composition, but you were starting to sculpt the way you see things and the way you thought about things and really making pictures that were unique to you. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, it's not that I wasn't, because if you look at my work, we can go up and down the list. I mean, if you look at my work, yeah, you got to see Rockwell in there. If you look at my work, yeah, you got to see Jack Davis is in there. If you see my work, you got to see Wilson McLean is in that work. If you see my work, you got to see Mark English in that work. If you see my work, you got to see Gary Kelly, Brad Holland. And we go all the way down the line. Uh, and so I've, I've just become just totally consumed with the idea of just absorbing as much work as you can and, and not to be drinking from the same pool. So maybe one day I'm looking at comic book artwork or I'm looking at fine artwork or I'm looking at architecture or I'm looking at car design or I'm looking at a cartoon, you know, I, I mean, it all comes from, you know, individual places for each artist. But as, as I take all of this stuff in, you know, I'm able to, to kind of let it all go through me. I don't really consciously say, Oh, wow. I love this Jack Davis. So I'm going to let's, let's do a Jack Davis. No, but Jack Davis is so ingrained in me from the time I was looking at him when I was in sixth grade that there's no doubt in my mind he's there. He's always there. Well, I think there's a big difference between copying someone and being influenced. And you you named a lot of great influences, but I never saw your work as copying any of those people. And yes, I'll plug Jack Davis and Bill Severin. I, I loved all those mad and cracked artists. So thank you for mentioning Oh, those. yeah. Basil Wolverton. Good Lord. I mean, those guys, they're, they're just, they're just great. And so you, you just start taking them all in. And as I say, you don't have them sitting on the board and you're copying, but they're all there. They're just all part of who you are. 
And I still, to this day, love the idea. There's this, there's a woman here in Cincinnati who posts on Facebook. Her name is Linda Crank, C-R-A-N-K. And she's posting, and she'll post artists, and you'll see a lot of artwork of artists that you do know, you know, Frank Duvenek or somebody on that. But she'll post some artwork of somebody I've never heard of. And it's just mind-blowing how good this stuff is. And you go, my God, there's another one. And every time you turn, uh, there's somebody else. Uh, I see every now and then Mike Mignola's posting artwork up there of people he admires. William Ray posts artwork of people he admires. And you see this work, and some of it you know, some of it you don't know, and some of the stuff that you don't know, it's just mind-blowing how good these people are. And so you're, when you see something like that that you've never seen before that blows you away, that is exciting. And, and it makes you want to push because, you know, that's the idea. Every year when I come to Kansas City and I get to sit down with Mark as he's drawing, you know, and Mark, here he is. He posts something up the other day and you're just like, damn. And he just keeps <laughs> on blowing you away. Just keeps on blowing you away. It's just, it, but it's so great. And I used to get because of all those years, I would come with you guys out to Kansas City and see what you guys are doing. And then I want to come back to my studio and want to play with something. And I'm going, no, 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 no. That's theirs. That's theirs. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's, you know, be inspired, love it, and use it. Use it as a kind of a source of inspiration and energy boost. But no. I mean, I did do a card once where I said I had to do this. My wife wanted me to do a Christmas card and she said, I don't know who she was using to print it, but like the art had to be done by nine o'clock that evening. So it was like, golly, how am I going to get these? So how am I going to get all these trees in? So I said, okay, I'm going to use those triangles. Uh oh. <laughs> so I did the triangle <laughs> trees and I even sent him a note to Mark saying, I had to rip you off this time, man. I, the deadline was too tight. Had to do it. <laughs> well, as much as I love and admire Mark, there are others on earth that have made triangle trees, Gustav Klimt, Baron Story. Oh yeah. Oh so, yeah. You know, oh, the, the triangles have, have made their, made their rounds. So you didn't, I don't think you hurt his no. feelings. No. I remember a piece that you did. I'll call it the long, tall cowboy. Yeah. Uh, a cowboy on a horse with big old legs. And that was, was that one of your early, I will call it exaggerated caricatures? Yeah, I would, I would say so. And the interesting thing about that piece was that was uh, for that art director who was at D Magazine who then later went to Texas Monthly, which we forgot to tell you that guy's name. His name was Fred and still is Fred Woodward, who later on became... Aha, uh-huh, yes. So that was that was kind of the, the, the little thing there. Well, so, I, I interrupted and said aha uh-huh, before you could tell our yeah. listeners where he went later that you worked for him. Right. So he went from D Magazine to the Dallas Times Herald to Texas Monthly and eventually became the art director at Rolling Stone for like 25, 30 years and is the legend of art direction, magazine art direction. And so when he was at uh, Texas Monthly, he was always given these. He always had a page in his magazine that was dedicated solely to art. And then Texas Monthly, it was called Western Art. And so you'd see all these great illustrators getting this piece in for Western Art. I'd get jobs from Fred, but it would be he would call me and say, Chris, I got this job. Yeah, 
we just got it, but the deadline is tight. And so I said, okay, when is it? I said, well, I need it tomorrow by 10 o'clock. I'm in Dallas. He's in Austin. So I'd stay up all night long working on this job for him, drive down to this, to the uh, Dallas bus station, put the art on the bus. They drive it to Austin. He'd get it by 10 o'clock in the morning. So I just started realizing, you know, I'm like the Maytag repairman to him. So when a job falls apart, something happens, he calls me, but he's never calling me for this plum assignment. So I thought, how am I going to do this? So I finally said, the hell with it. I did that on my own. So I created that picture and I said, Fred, I got this image. I want you to see. I'm going to send it to you. If you like it, run it. You can pay me. If you don't like it, send it back and I'll go away. So he got it. He said, I like it. We're going to run it. Bill us. Nice. And, and so what's interesting was probably about 10 years later, he's in New York and he's teaching at SVA and he asked me to come in and talk to his students. And I told that story and he interrupted me. He said, you're right. I remember that. I always thought I assigned that, but you're right. <laughs> he said, he said, come to think of it. He said, that's the piece that changed his perspective of me as an illustrator. That, in fact, I really was kind of the Maytag repairman for him. But when I did that piece, he said it changed his perspective of me. And so when he went to Rolling Stone, I was one of the first ones he called to do that back page of Rolling Stone. I think that is a very powerful story. And I hope listeners, especially younger listeners or, or the ones that are trying to move to the next step, Again, you've told many stories and thoughts about taking control, not in a control freak way, but it's your life, it's your pictures, it's your artwork, and it has to be what you want it to be and what you want to make it to be. It's who you are, and I think these are great stories that you're relating to us about that exact subject. Well, it's even more important even today. Because, you know, the publishing industry is not as, as vibrant as it was. But meanwhile, everybody has all this computer technology and social media stuff. So it's really important for you know, anybody who's doing this. That they have to be very, very proactive. But, you know, you got to be careful with that, though. You know, we'll talk about another friend of mine. And you knew him. He was a great friend of yours, Jack Unruh. Jack and I were great friends in Texas and we would talk while I, when I moved back up here to Cincinnati and we would talk and I was teaching and I was teaching at Columbus college of art and design before I moved up to Hartford. Um, and we were talking about the fact that I was getting at that time, a lot of pressure from the school to introduce a lot of the social media to the students for them to utilize the social media to promote themselves. So this had to be mid nineties. Right. Exactly. And so I was saying, you know, cause I, I was not a social media. I didn't even own a cell phone for a long time. Yeah. For, I mean, even for a while, I mean, I, I think I may have been the only person in Cincinnati who had a business line that was unlisted. <laughs> That's ironic. And <laughs> yeah. I still remember your flip phone that you had for a yeah. long time. Yep. So, so I, I kind of avoided that, but you know, we were getting a lot of pressure because the students were, because, you know, the studio system that we were talking about before, that didn't exist in the same way. So how do students get started? So they were utilizing their social media. 
And so I would be working on, on trying to figure out how to get them to do that. But I found it very frustrating, very frustrating because of the fact that I felt the work still was, you know, they were posting stuff, but it wasn't very good work. And so Jack and I, we were talking about this and he said, uh, this is probably about a year before he passed away. He said, you know, some young kid came and showed him his portfolio and said, how do I get started in the business? And Jack was like, going, I'm almost 80 years old. I don't know how to get started in the business. I mean, the business had changed so dramatically from when Jack entered the business to where it is now. I don't know where it is, but he said, looking at his portfolio, he said, the first thing he's got to do is he's got to get good because right now he's not very good. And that was like the epiphany for me. And I always refer to it as the Jack Unruh epiphany because I would tell my students all the time, you got to get good. You've got to get good. You want to post fine, but you got to make sure whatever you post. And I even remember Fred Woodward when we were talking about portfolios, he said, the only thing he wants to see in your portfolio is your best work. When he was at Rolling Stone, he was constantly getting portfolios filled with pictures of Michael Jackson, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Elton John, Chrissy Hines, you name it, you name it. And he was like going, I don't need that crap. You know, I just want to see what you do and what you do well, and then let me do my job. And I thought that was so insightful. And so to me, for students, it's like, only show your very best. If you have in the back of your mind a question, well, how is this? Do I think this is this? I don't know. It's like when you go, I don't know if it's it's not good enough. <laughs> a good test right there. Yeah. If you just pause for a moment, no, then no. I think Uh-oh. you need to be really excited about showing a piece and you need to want to you know, run it up the flagpole and say, Hey, everybody, look what I just did. Instead of throwing something at the wall and see if it sticks. And well, and that, there's a lot of people also, that don't know the difference, I guess. And that's also gets to where, you know, you really want to be able to have good friends within the business that you can talk to or people who will tell you the truth. You, you don't need a sycophant. You, you don't need another aunt or another uncle telling you you're great. There's not enough aunts and uncles who will be able to buy your artwork to sustain your career. So you've got to start relying on the kindness of strangers. Industry standards. Yeah. And, and get other people's points of view. And you have to look at things yourself and be able to cut the umbilical cord from the work. I remember one time a friend of mine referred to a piece of his he said it was spiritual. And I was kind of like thinking, I've been doing this stuff now for 20, this was a while ago, but it was like, I've been doing it about 25 years. And I ain't never done anything spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, that self-portrait of Rembrandt with a shadow across his face, that one's spiritual. <laughs> you know, that one is. Yeah. You know, there's, there's only a handful, you know, you know, the Pieta, you know. You know, certain Van Goghs, certain, those, those hit the mark, but no, not me. No. Well, and you were, you were saying, uh, honest friends in the business and part of that could be, and this comes up a lot on this podcast. And I think Vanessa Lemon, uh, mentioned it 
most recently that um, entering the juried shows is worth every penny because number one, once you get in that show, then that is the industry and the industry leaders saying, you know what, this is a really good image. We're going to take the time and the money and, and print this so that we can share this. And then hopefully eventually you will get a medal from entering these shows. And then you get the recognition again. And of course, a, a medal in a show doesn't pay your rent, but it does confide some confidence in those that are buying the work. No, I totally agree. I mean, they are, but, but you have to understand it's a double-edged sword. Got to be careful with it because if you, if you're chasing that, you're chasing the wrong thing. I mean, the, the, the thing that you want to be chasing is good work, period. And it's, it's kind of because, because number one, I've, I've always been a terrible judge of my own work when it comes to those shows. I mean, I've, the very first time I won a gold medal, I wasn't even going to enter the piece at first. And I thought, well, I did all this work for Rolling Stone. You mean not one of the pieces you want to enter? Well, just, just put that, enter that one. And it was this portrait I did of Jack Nicholson. And it ended up getting a gold medal. Now, honestly, if that had been a portrait done as well executed as that was of Nicholson, and it was a portrait of Dan Quayle, would it have even gotten in? Yeah, that's a, I doubt a, it. a great I doubt question. It. Yeah, I doubt it very seriously. It's almost like the subject was so important. It, well, it, people do. They get a little bit of that thing. You know, I was talking with another friend of mine who felt he had done this portrait, uh, Mark Summers. You know Mark. Sure. And he had he had done this portrait of the, the composers Gilbert and Sullivan. He thought it was the best piece he did all year. And it didn't get in the show. But meanwhile, this portrait he did of Leonardo DiCaprio wins a gold medal. <laughs> and he's like Much going, more timely. And he's like going, Ugh. you know, but of course the thing is, you know, the judges don't even know who Gilbert and Sullivan are. <laughs> they, they don't even know what they right. look like. So, so it's, it, it becomes that type of thing. And so you got to be careful with it. You know, you, you want to focus everything on doing, you know, when you're working on a job, I don't care if it's a job that you're doing for barely anything or a high profile job, N neither one of those two jobs gets more of my attention. I mean, I try my best to make every picture as good as I can make it. And that's all I focus my energy on. If I take, it's that, it's that secret that Jack Palance is talking about in City Slickers, you know, that right there. You, do, you take your eye off that ball right there, making that piece for that one client the best you can make it. And you just keep focused on that. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And over time, you'll get better and better and better. And then the odds of being able to get in the show will increase. Um, the real goal is to be able to, um, at least for me, is now is uh, I don't feel the need to enter the shows. I don't want to be driven by that. I just want to be driven by my work. Well, Norman Rockwell, at a very young age, starting out as an illustrator, 
I believe he painted in gold leaf or something like gold leaf the phrase 100% on a little card and he put that at the top of his easel and that's what he was saying no matter what the job no matter how much it pays or how little it pays every job was the most important job he'd ever done 100% yeah and I think that's true and that's the thing when, when you try to impart you know now that I'm teaching and I've been teaching you know I started teaching when I was in Texas and then continued all the, the years. So I've been teaching now for over 30 years. And, and that's the, those are the kind of lessons that you want to try to pass on to students uh, through the example of how you, you present your work, the example of how you uh, treat them in a classroom um, is, you know, when I'm in the classroom, they get my 100% attention. My phone, you know, does, if it, I do have, keep my phone with me in case of family emergency, but if business calls, I don't take the phone call. All the years I taught up at CCAD, living in Cincinnati and the schools up in Columbus, I didn't miss classes. I did not miss class. And for a long time, I had classes starting at eight o'clock in the morning and I don't miss them. <laughs> I used to no, do what I mean is I, I used to teach I, I, then too and I don't miss eight o'clock classes. No. No, no. And I, I showed up. I I was there on time. And and I stayed. And because the students deserve it. Well, my and, students know that uh, oh, go ahead, Chris. No, and, and that's just it. And and if they don't give 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 their best, you you know, sometimes people thought of me a bit being a bit of a hard ass with them, but you know, it's how you practice is how you play and your assignments, your homework assignments, that's your practice. And if you're not going to practice hard and produce hard, you're going to have a tough time because this business treats the average very hard, just brutal. It does not treat average artists. Well, they usually are doing something else. Well, Chris, for many years, while I have, observed your work, I see three things immediately in pretty much every piece. And number one, the drawing is just so good and it's so personal to you. I can look at one of your drawings across the street and I'll say, yep, yep, that's a Chris, that's a Chris Payne. So number one, I see that incredible drawing that's sound and unique and the next thing I see is 99% of the time is I see some humor. I see some weird little smirk or a satirical thing or something in the piece that has that uh, element of humor. And then I see content because there's usually a reason you've done the piece or that piece of artwork is doing a job to clarify something else, whether it's a story or a book or text, whatever it is. So we've touched on all of these things in our conversation. And I just want you to reiterate a little bit about your personality and how much you think your, your brain, your personality, your influences, everything all kind of comes together in all of these pieces. Uh, obviously a lot of it is conscious 
And some of it is just who you are. And I didn't really formulate a good question, but talk about your work in those terms that I threw out there, if you would. Sure. Um, well, start with drawing. I mean, drawing is why I do what I do. It's, it's why when we were talking about college, I ended up going into illustration because I wanted to, that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to draw pictures. I wanted to draw pictures that were fun that I enjoyed. I didn't get a joy out of throwing paint at a canvas, looking at it to see whether I liked it and smudging it around and then hitting it again. And like, do I like it? Do I not? I mean, I, there's an emotional connection that you have with artwork like that. Um, and you respond to it emotionally, but that wasn't the art that I wanted to do. I wanted to make pictures. So, I mean, I'm one of those people, I can tell you the drawings I was doing before kindergarten. I could tell you the drawings I made when I was in kindergarten. I could tell you the drawings I did when I was in second grade. Uh, the reason why my grades weren't very good in school was because I was drawing. I was drawing in class all the time. I would draw on the tests. I would draw on the <laughs> notebook. I would draw on the, you know, I drew all. I mean, I know for a fact that if I were in school today, they'd be having me so filled with Ritalin that, you know, <laughs> I'd be comatose. But, but, but I just do it, I did it all the time and I loved it. And so when I was young, you know, and I liked that stuff, I found the stuff that reinforced it. And the first, one of the first things was, of course, comics. And I was a big Marvel guy. And then eventually it was Mad Magazine. And Mad Magazine, of course, it was all artwork. Very little photography at all, if ever. It was all artwork. And the art yeah, in the early all, Mad Magazines, I don't remember any photography. About the only time would be like in the 50s when they had like a Bob and Ray thing. They'd have a photograph of Bob and Ray. But the whole story of Bob and Ray's was illustrated. Um, but you know, it was, it was, and the artists they had, Paul Coker, Mort Drucker, Jack Davis, Angelo Torres, you know, all of these great artists and the covers by Norman Mingo and Kelly Freese, Don Martin, know, Don Martin, oh man, flap, flap, flap. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, it was just, and so I really loved that stuff. And as a kid and as a person, I mean, I love the Bugs Bunny. I love the humor in those. I loved, uh, when I got in college, you know, we loved, uh, fire sign theater records. We loved Monty Python. We loved all that kind of silly slapstick kind of stuff that was out there. Um, the TV shows that we watched usually had humor based in it. So I think I was much more geared towards that. I wasn't geared to the science fiction. Certainly was never really geared towards the horror stuff don't really get a kick out of somebody seeing somebody get an arrow stuck through his eye. So it's just, it's just not me. Um, I'm, I'm much more of the, uh, you know, dead parrot sketch, which I actually ripped that idea <laughs> off for an illustration. Of Monty Python. Yeah. Yeah, I did. It was a picture of a uh, farmer who was busted growing marijuana. So it's this farmer with all this marijuana all around him and he's got carrots tied to the marijuana stalks and said, trying to convince the guy that he's actually a carrot farmer. And you could see <laughs> that sounds like something you would do. Yes, It's the dead parrot sketch. So, um, yeah, I just did that type of thing. And so, um, I think it's 
who I am. It really is. It's when I was in high school, I did caricatures of my teachers. I did caricatures of friends. I did drawings of people. I, I did most of my drawing all the time from observation. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of drawing that was just out of my head. You would do some because you were in class and you, you couldn't, you know, you'd be trying to draw a civil war painting drawing and, you know, you're just, or some, you know, stukas and some, you know, panzer tanks or something like that. And you'd have to use your imagination, but you'd seen pictures of those. You'd watch the combat TV shows. And so you'd be utilizing that. And, and, but uh, for the most part, most of the time when I was drawing, I, I was drawing from observation, but I just love to draw. And so it's the reason why I decided when I was in art school that fine art wasn't the place for me. Illustration was the place because it was the place that was going to let me draw. And um, there's nothing positive or negative. That's just what you wanted to do. And yeah. you went that way. End of story. Yeah. I mean, it, it was weird because people would say you have to be true to yourself. And the, and I'd be saying, but you don't understand. I, I'm trying to be true to myself. I don't <laughs> want to be an abstract expressionist. I want to do this. And, and it was, it was kind of weird. And so it wasn't until I got, like I say, the, the, this moment when Alan Cobra comes to Dayton and I'm like, holy cripes, that's it right there. What percentage what of I the want. student body that were observing him rejected what he was doing? I would say a lot, unfortunately. What do you think? Well, we, the, again, this was, we saw Alan at the art director's club. So I would say about okay, seven, or eight, seven or eight of our students, seven or eight of our students went up there. I know a couple of them didn't get it. They didn't like it. I would say it was probably 50, 50, 50, 50 split. I, one of the things I think kind of threw people was just the idea of creating an entire image with a crow quill. You know, yeah, that, a that little was, teeny tiny line. I think people found that daunting. Yeah, people thought, wait a minute, I'm going to try to do this entire picture here. You know, I'll be, I'll be sitting there drawing this thing for two weeks. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, watching somebody, you know, watching, say, Mark do a demo, you know, in 45 minutes versus somebody drawing with a crow quill for 45 minutes. I mean, that's why. You know, Jack Unner, he always hated doing demos because he said, watching me draw is like watching grass grow. It's, <laughs> it, he, just, he just felt that people wouldn't enjoy it. Because I remember it doesn't him have, saying that. Yeah, because it, you, know, you can't splash it around like you can with a big fat brush. So we've talked about students a little bit and teaching a little bit. This sounds like something negative, but I don't want it to be. I, I want to, I'm going to ask, what do you think the biggest hindrance to being a student is now. And I guess I could turn that around, but I think to point out something that maybe needs to be corrected in a global sense might be easier than trying to list a bunch of little things that are, that are perfection. So I guess my question is, what do you think the biggest negative or hindrance about today's society is on students and, and people trying to learn? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, like you said, I don't want to come off like I'm criticizing students because students are a product of how they were raised, how they were taught in schools. You know, they were somewhat molded, particularly by the time they get to college. But the, one of the things is, and I hate to keep harping on the computer, 
because it's, I find it fascinating. And I'll just tell this quickly. Had a student, here's your assignment. I want you to illustrate a factoid. A factoid is a small fact, small piece of information. A grasshopper can jump 10 feet. The size of a grasshopper compared to a human, that means the grasshopper can jump the same distance a human would be able to jump if he could jump 100 yards, something like that. So you're just kind of little factoid. And so this one student, and, and I did not hand out the factoids. I gave them the place where they could find their factoids and they get, and then they select them. Well, a student came in with a factoid and they said, this is the factoid. And they're part of the assignment was they were supposed to come in with 10 to 15 ideas. This student came in with one. And I said, wait a second, what was the assignment? Part of being a professional is you follow instructions. So the instructions were, you didn't do that. So let's let's move on. So what's the idea here? And they, their, their factoid was cats can hear sonograms or ultrasound. Cats can hear ultrasound. And so the idea was a picture of a cat listening to a pregnant woman's tummy. And I said, okay, so what other ideas? Well, I couldn't think of any other. I said, well, let's think this through. What is ultrasound? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> well, there's your problem right there. And so here we are. We're in an environment where they have the computer at their fingertip. And the I, I mean, all this information is there. It's all there. And somehow or another, this idea of being able to do that research escape this person. When you were in school, if you wanted to find that piece of information out, you had to go to the library. You had to go to the card catalog or the reader's guides. You had to look it up. You found a magazine. You opened up the magazine. You read the magazine's article, and maybe that article answered your question. If it didn't, you know, it wasn't there. I have to go back to the reader's guide and find some more. Nowadays, all they have to do is Google or Bing and it's all right there. So all this stuff, I think, is just so much at the person's fingertips. The willingness sometimes to utilize it isn't there. It's, it's like when I was in school, we would have a guest artist, maybe once a semester or once a year. And when that guest artist came, I mean, you'd go into the room and I mean, the place was packed. Nowadays, when I was, te you know, when I was teaching up at CCAD, Every department had a speaker coming in once a week. So that school was literally having, during the course of a week, half a dozen to a dozen speakers every week. And we would get some really good speakers to come in and students aren't showing. Why is that? Because the, it's, 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 it's just so much is there. So the need for them, the feeling, the need for them to go get it isn't there. So they got all this stuff at their fingertips. Another example, person needed a photograph. They had their reference. Well, your hand is wrong. Well, what am I supposed to do? I said, shoot a picture of somebody's hand. How am I supposed to do this? I'm sitting in a classroom where every single student's. Now, again, I'm the old guy. I'm the guy who doesn't know computers. I don't know this stuff, but excuse me, everybody's got a cell phone. Excuse me, hold your hand. How do you want it? Let's say snap, snap, snap. Type in your email address. Send the email. Here. Okay, open up your email. There's your reference. How long did that take? 
the mysteries of media. And I I explain this to the student and and the student starts to cry. And, And I'm thinking to myself, when you and I got started with school, you know, if we wanted to shoot reference, you had to take, you had to get either a Polaroid camera or you'd shoot some film and you take it to the lab and you have to wait for them to develop it. And if you, if you didn't get it, you had to shoot it all over again. You know, now this stuff, it's just, everything is just so much there. And yet because it's there, it's not valued and it's not pursued. And so I find it amazing at times when I'll be talking with artists and I'll mention Gary Kelly, who's he? Again, you want to be an illustrator, you want to be an artist. Uh, do you know who, you know, I don't know, Beyonce is? They all know who Beyonce is. But I don't know how many of them want to be the next Beyonce but they want to be the next Gary Kelly as far as having success as an illustrator, but they don't know Gary Kelly. And yet it's all right there at their fingertip. So to me, that's the one big thing that drives me nuts is the lack of what I call curiosity. The uh, lack curiosity of, is a very important, big word in the world uh, at large and not even just for illustrators or painters or creatives, but no matter what you do, if you want to be a mechanic, you better be curious. And the world is so adept at getting information and compiling it that there's hardly anything that you can't figure out now. Just type it into YouTube and you can be a better mechanic. Well, the the thing is, not only that, but the whole idea is to be simply getting better because I have no idea what styles will be in vogue 10 years from now. I don't know what formats illustrations will be presented 10 years from now. I do know this 25 years ago, the idea of having artwork on tennis shoes was not even thought of the idea of having illustration art on boxer shorts, on ties, on sides of buildings, on interiors of restaurants on all the wrapped all around the various, a vehicle wrapped around exactly all the different places that art now it becomes I mean, it, it didn't exist and yet it's there now magazines is the artwork is volume there isn't the volume that there was back then but there's other places and once again there'll be other places in the future there'll be a lot more motion I mean, there was no such thing as a video game industry back then. I, I still remember Pong. Pong was the great <laughs> innovation. You know, Asteroids was the last game I ever played. But, I mean, the thing is, look how advanced that stuff is. Look at how advanced the art is in filmmaking. Look at how advanced the art is in TV commercials and motions and gifts and all these different places. And not only that now, because of the internet, you could be selling your own personal prints to heck. You could be buying a piece of artwork from some artist who lives in Iceland as easily as you could sell your artwork to somebody in Iceland. And so it's all available there, but how it's all going to be done, I don't know. But the one thing again, you got to remember the Jack on the Epiphany. You got to get good. 
And if you're going to get out there and start promoting your work and not showing really good stuff, as Jack also said, you're only promoting your failure then. Yeah, those are good words, good things to think about. My next question to you is to have you talk about the Hartford program that you are. Mm -hmm. You've been involved with that for many, many years, and now you are the director. So give us your uh, your elevator pitch on this Hartford program that you deal with. Well, the, the Hartford uh, MFA in illustration program, um, quite honestly, you have to tip your hat to Murray Tinkleman for this. Murray was, was the genius who figured this stuff out. Because, again, we go back to the, the differences in art school in general. And, again, this is generalization. If you're in fine art, you study your fine arts classes in your undergraduate. Somewhere along the line, you as a undergraduate fine arts major, major come to make a decision. Do you want to be a painter, a lithographer, a photographer, a sculptor? What do you, where do you want to take this? And you go through that and you come to maybe your junior year, the decision of what you want to do. And you really focus your work on that. And then you graduate. And you hope that your work is of a quality that you can apply to graduate school, where you will go to graduate school and really hone that focus of work so that you can get that work ready to then attack the gallery world and try to take on the world of art and become a successful artist. In general, come the days I was in school, you would go to school. You study to be an illustrator or a graphic designer or a fabric designer or name the, the other element that you want to, whatever it is on the commercial side. You graduate and you apply for a job and you go to work. That's what you do. You go to work. And nowadays, if you want to teach or you want other things, you oftentimes you need to have a master's degree. And because of the fact you might have an artist who wants to earn a master's degree in illustration and he or she may be married, maybe have children, maybe have a job, maybe involved with a relationship. They have a life and they may be living in Grand Rapids. They may be living in Cincinnati. They may be living in Kansas city. And for them to say, it's time to uproot the family and let's go to Hartford so I can get my master's degree. The partner may have a job. The kids may be tied up in school. Who knows? And for them to just pack up, that's a deal breaker. And Murray saw that as a problem. And so he developed what's called low residency, a low residency program. Started out at Syracuse where it was just an MA. And the only reason why it was an MA was because Syracuse already had MFAs and they didn't want confusion. So they just made it an MA. When Bill Thompson talked with Murray and they brought the program over to the University of Hartford. They converted it, made adjustments to the uh, curriculum and converted it to a full MFA in illustration. So this allows a student to earn their MFA from home with some time away from home. You got to come to Hartford for a few weeks and you do the, what we call our city contact periods where we're getting ready to go out to San Francisco, Oakland, where we're going to have studio visits. We're going to have illustration illustrators give presentations, 
goes to go to uh, a person's home to see their private collection of illustration. That's an amazing collection of illustration history. And, and so we do things like that. When we're in Pasadena, we, we got a tour of the Disney uh, studios. We got to the, uh, some of the museums and we had these great artists from the Pasadena area. When we're in New York, we go, we have a lot of the New York artists come. We get, uh, we got to have a studio tour at uh, Artman uh, Nathan Love Animation Studios in New York. And of course, go to some of the galleries there. So you do these city visits. In the meantime, you're working on your work. So after Hartford, they have their curriculum classes, the classroom work that they do. They go home, they do their work, they communicate with me through the internet. It's not like an online tutorial. They have their writing assignments, they have their illustration assignments, and they have body of work that they're doing, their thesis body of work that is presented after their two years at the program that is hung in the gallery at Hartford on the third year that they're in Hartford and when they graduate. And so it allows them to earn their MFA with a reasonable amount of time away from home, as little disruption in their personal lives as possible, and yet to meet the requirements needed to earn an MFA. And so um, it's, it's taken me out of the classroom where I'm now more of an administrator, but we're, we're making minor modifications to Murray's program and that um, tr he, traditionally they would always go to like Fort Worth, Dallas, we go to Pasadena, San Francisco, and New York. Not that long ago, we had students go to Columbus, Ohio. Not just because I live in Ohio, but Columbus, Ohio has the Billy Ireland Cartoon Museum, best cartoon museum in the world. I mean, we were seeing original Gertie the Dinosaur drawings. We were seeing incredible originals. We went up to the Maza Children's Book Art Museum up in Finley, Ohio, where we were seeing great children's book illustration. And of course, the, the artists in this area are top shelf artists from people who work in the entertainment industry, children's book art, cartooning, comics, the full gamut of, of artists. So that, that's the idea behind the program. Um, we, we go to different places and then they have their, their illustration assignments. So they're creating art, they're writing papers and they're getting real practical understanding about illustration. The one thing that I've done also is to add one new class, which is a pedagogy class, which discusses the art of teaching for illustration specifically. Well, it That's, seems like Murray was one step ahead of the game to come up with this idea, probably I'm going to say 96 or 97, late nineties, mid nineties. I think actually it, he was doing it before that. Okay. Um, I first met Murray when I was living in Dallas. Uh, he brought the class to Fort Worth and called me and I gave a presentation to his students in about 1984. Oh my gosh. That's even before I considered that. So that he really was a step ahead or two. Oh yeah. No, well, you know, Murray taught for years and years at Parsons ran their art department, illustration department. And so he has, not only did he have his own Hall of Fame illustration career, but he also had, I mean, a very 50 years of teaching in illustration. And, and so um, this, he, that was his real passion. 
and it's it's becoming as much a passion to me and and as much as I love doing the art that I'm doing I'm focusing on it but I'm really trying to gear as much of my attention and focus to this program as possible because I mean when when Murray passed away about three years ago um they asked me to put my hat in a ring now I had been teaching at Columbus College of Art and Design for 19 years and I wasn't sure at first but I finally said you know what this program is important. It's important for illustration that a program like this exists that gives artists the freedom to do that. I mean, we've got artists from Florida, from Utah, from California, all over the country. We've had international students come in to take the program and it gives them the opportunity. And for many of them, the way the program is constructed, it really is life changing for them. It really has made significant improvement in their life and they really loved it i mean it, it, like any other program it's what you put into it i mean we this the faculty is a great faculty we got great speakers great presentations i mean we if, if you saw the list of people that we have speak it is it, it's a powerful list and, and it's not just that of illustration we get cartoonists comic book artists illustrators painters uh designers um, we, we really run a wide range of artists that we, we have present. They get a huge series of, for lack of a better word, that you can call it illustration history. We call it illustration in context because it is about the artwork in the context of how it was used and the times it served. And, and we have lectures that talk about wildlife illustration, science fiction, fantasy illustration, comics, cartoon, children's you know, the full gamut of all the various places that people who have illustration skills can take those skills and apply them to the art that they want to make. Well, I can sense your commitment and your excitement about this program. And it goes back in my mind. I remember talking to you about when you were just teaching back in Syracuse. I didn't mean to say just teaching. You know what yep. I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But you were an instructor and uh, you were surrounded by other great illustrators and you were excited then. And what a what an interesting program. And the the tip of the hat to Murray again for being Murray Tinkleman, in case we uh, glossed over his last name a couple of times. But what a tip of the hat to coming up with this innovative program long before it was easy. <laughs> I think it's a little no. bit easier now because of the internet, but it didn't exist back then. Well, yeah. And it's really, it's really important that there is a distinction and there is a place and a value for it. There are a lot of good online programs that have online tutorials where you're visiting with the artists and people are working on the computer going back and forth. This is a little bit more, this is a little different. And that's why, you know, when we go through our interviewing process, you know, I have to talk to the students a lot. I mean, to find out because we we don't take everybody and it's not because we don't want people but the the program requires a certain level of maturity because you know we're not there every week to say did you do your homework did you do your homework did you do your homework and so that person has to balance their life because again they're at home in Ohio, Missouri, California, wherever it may be. 
and they have things happening in their lives. And so they have to plan, but they have the schedule, they get their assignment dates of the things that they have to hit. And, and we do that communication. It has me sit in front of this computer a lot more than I ever thought I would, because like I just got some layouts, some value studies from a student and, you know, I got on the computer and started making my adjustments to his value study and I didn't just make my adjustments and sent it off. I sent the value and then I wrote an extended kind of letter back to him explaining everything I did and why I did what I did in hopes that he understood what it all meant and how he could apply that into his, it's how it's going to apply to his next value study. And so it's, it's, it's good work and, and I like doing it. Um, it's a real challenge because you, you believe in the program. As I told the students at CCAD, if there was a college across the street from my house and they had offered me a job, I wouldn't have taken it. The only job I would have taken is this. And it's because of the importance it means to, to illustrators. Chris, tell us a little bit about what you remember about getting that phone call from time magazine that you were the choice to do the official Obama portrait for time. Well, um, it's interesting because the, the, the way that job actually came about was I was contacted to be part of the group of artists that were going to be doing a portrait of Barack Obama when he was named man of the year. So, um, and you, I think for those who don't know this, when time magazine selects a person of the year, whoever it may be, they usually commission four, four or more artists to do a piece. And sometimes the piece runs, sometimes it doesn't run. I've, I've only received that call twice for the man of the year. One, one of them did not run and well, actually technically both of them didn't run. So, which I found ironic in the sense that time magazine, the way they normally work is they'll call you on a Wednesday and they want the artwork in New York on a Friday. So you only have like a day and a half to do it. Now, Barack Obama selected president of the United States in November. He's the first African-American being elected president of the year. Who's going to be man of the year? Hmm. I, I don't know. <laughs> Who would that be? So they know, no, like November 6th that he's going to be person of the year, but still they don't call me until like, sometime in December and they called me on a Thursday and said, well, we'll get you the reference and we need the artwork on Monday. What was the deal with that? <laughs> but never anyway, surprise. Anyway, yeah. So, so they called me to do it. And at, at the time the art director said, now we know you do your kind of stylized caricatures and all that, but this is person of the year. We don't want a caricature. We want you to kind of work kind of in line with the old ABCs of time, Boris Artsebeshev, Ernst Hamlin Baker, and Boris Shalyapin. Those were the three artists in the 50s that did tons of covers, beautiful illustrations. They oftentimes referred to them as the ABCs of time. So that meant he wanted it super realistic. So he said, I'll send you some reference and you can go. So he sent me the reference I got on Friday. I did two drawings, sent them off to him and said, choose whichever one you want. He said, okay, we'll go with this one, the one that I ended up doing. I said, okay, now, before I go any further, who's the photographer on this? Find out who the photographer is on this thing. Let them know what's going on. And you negotiate and compensate them for the reference for me doing the illustration for it. So I Because you were that. essentially 
uh, breaking copyright rules and they were giving you permission to do it, but you right. were covering all the bases saying, look, this yep. photographer did gone? a great job. It's his work. You're telling me to interpret it like I do. So that's a huge, uh, that's a, that's a huge shout out to the photographer and young people that should know better than to steal reference. Yeah. And particularly because they wanted me to be really whole true to the reference that I really wasn't supposed to do any distortions. And so, uh, you know, they said they got it all covered. It's all been taken care of. So I crank like crazy all over the weekend and get it done, get it to them on Monday. They get it. And so I said, what am I going to hear whether I make it or not? And he goes, I don't know. We'll let you know. So time passes. Don't hear anything. Don't hear anything. Don't hear anything. Finally, I couldn't take it any longer. I called. I said, did I get it? And he says, no, no, we're going to go with a shepherd fairy cover. Cause he did the hope poster. Oh uh, yes. And he said, but I, Chris, I want you to know, everybody loves your art. As a matter of fact, so-and-so, she cried when she saw it. It was so good. She thought your piece was that good. I said, that doesn't do me any good. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. I, you know, I didn't get the cover. So, so I called my, so I called home and told my wife, she said, did you get the cover? I said, no. And she said, you know, this is what's, you got to have a wife that's going to defend you because her first words were like F time magazine, F them. <laughs> she said, you call him back and tell him you're never going to work with him ever again. You're done. You are done. <laughs> and I said, no, let it go. Well, just don't her. worry. But anyway, so it was about two weeks later, I get a phone call from Arthur Hochstein and said, we've decided to use your illustration on the inaugural cover. So they ended up using mine for the inauguration, which in, in retrospect, that's, that's really great because, you know, mine's the cover for the first, the inauguration of the first African-American president. So it all worked out, but it's just one of those deals. And it was funny about, I don't know, maybe about a month or two later, I had to go to New York and I met up with Arthur at, at, for lunch. And I told him that story word for word. I didn't say F, I, I used the word. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, she, she, and he said, you know, I'm surprised Paula doesn't say that more often about us. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, yeah, you I don't want to meet, yeah, that guy didn't want to meet Paula in a dark alley. No, well, it was just, it was, you know, I, if you notice, I mean, I haven't done anything for time in ages. Number one, I mean, Arthur's retired, but it's also, they, they would call you, as I say, on a Wednesday and the art would have to be in New York on Monday, on, on Friday and staying up all night that's I'm going to let the young people, let the young people do that. I mean, I'm, I'm on the doorstep of 65. I've been doing this over 40 years. I've been very blessed to have a good career. I love the fact that I get to teach now and, and be effective with young people who want to have a 40 year career. I'm doing my utmost to try to prepare them, you know, to do so. And, and, the, the core of that is what you were talking about before is getting them to draw better and draw more. And that's why you, when you go to my Instagram account, you know, you'll see the drawings that I constantly do. It's, it's what I do for myself, but it's an example I try to set for my students to let them know, you know, when you do a drawing, do a drawing, don't do a doodle, do a drawing, draw with a purpose, draw with a reason, draw to get better. And if you keep doing that and you do a hundred thousand drawings, I guarantee you, you'll be a draw better drawer on the hundred and first drawing than you were on the first. And if you just get used to doing that, if you love to do this, 
it almost goes back to the, and I'll just end this with this. Do you remember, did you ever see the movie Shenandoah? Long ago. Jimmy Stewart and this guy goes up, I think it was Doug McClure goes up to Jimmy Stewart and says he wants to ask for his daughter, daughter's hand in marriage. And Jimmy Stewart says, do you like her? And the guy says, what are you talking about? And he goes, I love her. He goes, no, I get love. I get that. Yeah, I know all this stuff about love and I get all that. But do you like her? And I think that to me is the key with illustration. I love illustration. But the other thing is, you know, I like doing it. I just like to do it. And so for me, I like to draw. And this is the vehicle, the place that lets me to do the things that I like to do. And it's, it's not hard to do. It's not hard for me at the end of the day to sit down with a pad of paper and draw. I never once sit there and go, oh, God, I got to do another drawing. I've been posting these dumb drawings. No, I don't do it. I do the drawing. If I don't get it done that day, I don't get it done that day. I don't lose any sleep over it because I've been working on other things. But I like to do it. And if you can have that and are willing to kind of have the discipline to do this, you can have a chance. Well, Chris, that was a very generous and thoughtful wrap up to this whole thing. And as always, I enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thank you for sharing your insights and great stories. Lots of things to think about. So thank you so much for being here with me today, Chris. It was great. And I look forward to seeing you in the drum room this coming June. We'll see you there. You couldn't stop me if you knew how. (laughs) (laughs) thanks Chris all right man Brent you take care thank you